Sometimes you really can just pack it up and move to a remote island in the South Pacific. She called me one day and said, uh, would you be inclined to move to a place called Kiribati? And I quit my job three minutes later and uh, called her back and, and said, Kira, what? Coming up, J. Martin Truce tells us about living in Kiribati and Vanuatu and how he retraced Robert Louis Stevenson's itinerary in the South Seas. And we'll consider how one of the world's great wonders was built over millions of years by billions of tiny coral polyps. We'll learn how people have interacted with the Great Barrier Reef for thousands of years and the threats that changing climate brings to the reef and its inhabitants today. And they called it the labyrinth, you know, the myth of the minotaur, the great bull-headed beast waiting to eat you. And that's how they viewed it. Ian McCallman tells us how our shifting relationship with the natural world is impacting one of nature's great masterpieces. There's a whole new world to explore in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. There are thousands of remote islands and atolls in the Pacific that few of us have heard of, much less visited. It's home to scattered populations of Polynesians, Micronesians, Melanesians, and Austronesians. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear what living in Oceania taught author J. Martin Troost about himself and the adventures he had traveling in the wake of Robert Louis Stevenson. As you approach the east coast of Australia, the South Pacific becomes the Coral Sea, it's home to the only living organism on Earth that you can actually see from outer space. Historian Ian McCallman joins us now from Sydney to tell us how humans have been mesmerized and sometimes even terrified by the Great Barrier Reef. He fell under its spell back in 2001 while reenacting one of Captain Cook's voyages. And now Professor McCallman has written The Reef, A Passionate History. And he joins us on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the human side of the Great Barrier Reef. Ian, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, and thank you for uh, all the work and the the passion you've put into sharing a better understanding of the reef. Now, just before we get into this conversation, describe the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, It's just an amazing natural phenomenon. It is almost indescribable. It's the only phenomenon, that organic phenomenon, that you can see from outer space. The astronauts could see it there in the little blue sphere. But it's enormous, so it's hard to encompass. I think it's 1,200 to 1,400 miles long. The region it encompasses is bigger than Japan. I gather it's even half the size of Texas. Is is there, like, substantial islands where you've got cities, or is it mostly just tiny little things that disappear at high tide? No, there's substantial islands, but none big enough to encompass a city. But quite a lot of them have uh, resorts. There's two different kinds of islands. They're the ones that have been created on the coral, which tend to be coral caves, you know, white sands, very vulnerable to rise of sea. And the others are volcanic areas that were, you know, when the sea rose up were created as islands. And there are many, many of them. There are more than 3,000 islands, and some of them are strikingly beautiful. Is the Great Barrier Reef, magnificent as it is uh, in size and natural wonder, does it have a special place in the heart of Australians? I mean, Americans are all about, you know, the Grand Canyon or something like this. How do Aussies look at the Great Barrier Reef? Now, that's a really good question, Rick. I, I don't think they see the Great Barrier Reef as... Deeply, for example, as Americans might see Yosemite or the the Grand Canyon as kind of central icons of the country, partly because the country's so big, it's yeah. a continent. And so if you're at the other end of it, you know, it takes you six or seven hours to fly there. But it's partly because I think people have only seen small bits of it. There are very few people being able to encompass the reef. So, you know, when you visit it, you might go to an island or a resort or something, but you only see a a small area. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to demonstrate in this book was how deeply it is connected with our our myth, if you like, or, you know, our foundational views of ourselves. And also to get across my, my passionate concern that we might lose it. Now, you're a professor of history. How did you become so fascinated by uh, and involved in, in the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a weird story, Rick. I, I, I mean, initially, it was about 10 years ago, I was inveigled onto a reenactment done by the BBC and also by the Discovery Channel in, in the States 
of Cook's voyage through the Great Barrier Reef on a replica under simulated 18th century conditions. And it was absolutely horrifying. It was really a kind of big brother at sea, you know. Uh-huh. But it put me through this most beautiful place, and I fell in love with it. Are you a city slicker, or are you a country boy? I'm a bit of a mixture. Yeah, I did do the, you would be familiar with the phenomenon in the States. I did during the 70s, I dropped out and built a mud brick house in the country like, you know, nice. a hippie. And you're, you're a professor of history, and that's what's interesting to me is because this book that you've written is a passionate history, meaning the story of people. I mean, there's like, you, you just highlight 20-some people who were captivated by the, the reef over the last couple of centuries, explorers, resource seekers, castaways, indigenous people. Talk about that, that human overlay to the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, that's something that came to me. I mean, in some ways it seems obvious enough, but the way we look at a reef or a mountain is determined by what we feel inside, what we think about it. And that's what makes it, that's what creates it. And what struck me, particularly on this voyage, was the reenactment voyage, was for Cook, the reef was an unimaginably terrifying and horrible place. Was that just because he could run aground? He could run aground and they would sink immediately in wooden ships and be bashed to pieces. That's like having a cat in a room full of rocking chairs with a long tail, you know, (laughs) when you're taking your boat through the Great Barrier Reef without modern charts. Absolutely. It's like a minefield, honestly. And then there was their great fear that if they did make land, which they did after they got wrecked, that they would be killed by savages you know, with spears and eaten. <laughs> and they called it the labyrinth after the, you know, the myth of the minotaur, the great bull-headed beast waiting to eat you. And that's how they viewed it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are voyaging into the terrifying labyrinth of the Great Barrier Reef, uh, about as, as big as the west coast of the United States. We're joined by Ian McCallman, and his new book is The Reef, A Passionate History. Ian, when you're thinking about the characters that uh, sort of enliven the whole story of the reef. Who would you highlight for us, just briefly? What's one character that sort of epitomizes the the human overlay of this great natural structure? Well, it's hard to pick one single story, but I think, I mean, one of the weirdest stories is the story of the first reef scientist uh, who was called Savile Kent. And he, he was a, a British scientist who came out and fell in love with the reef. But when you look at his human story, when you try to explain why, not only did he fall in love with the reef, but he produced this sublime book with photographs and paintings and knowledge about the reef, you find that in his background, he was back in England as someone who participated as a child in the murder of his three-and-a-half-year-old half-brother. And he got away with it. His sister went to prison for him, in effect, for 22 years. And he was haunted. He more or less ran away to Australia to escape and make a new life. (laughs) His sister followed him, actually, after she got out of prison. But that's another story. What I wanted to stress was this was a wounded, diminished, hurt man who came to the reef and found something sublime, something that was a kind of... It represented everything that that was wonderful for him. And he turned it into this masterpiece of a book. But he could never have done it if he hadn't been so wounded and so hurt. So I suppose that's where the human history connects with the actual encounter with the reef. So you have quite a variety. You're highlighting the stories of 20 people whose life really was the reef. And the fascinating thing about this collection you've put together in your book is that you get into the mind of each of these characters who came to see the reef as as even more than a place. Talk about Ted Banfield, sort of a modern-day Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, he's a kind of mixture of Robinson Crusoe and your Thoreau, who was one of his heroes. And while Thoreau got himself a hut on the edge of Walden Pond, Banfield ran away from civilization, even though it was only a small town, which was really destroying him. He was a journalist and unsuccessful, And he ran away to an island called Dunk Island. And then he was restored to health by living there in this wild island. And he started to write about it in the way that Walden did, a kind of romantic beachcomber's tale 
of what it's like to live in a wonderful, deserted, tropical island in the middle of the Great Barrier Reef. And he wrote a series of books that had an effect rather similar to Walden. They were actually well, well received in the States as well as in the UK, even more than in Australia. Ian McCalman's book, The Reef, is published by Scientific American. We have a link to his website and his online exhibit that tells the human history of the Great Barrier Reef. It's in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. You'll find that in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. As a traveler today, can you be inspired by these romantics that wrote about the Great Barrier Reef 100 years ago? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There is quite a significant group of painters who've lived on the reef, you know, who've lived that kind mm-hmm. of art escape mm-hmm. and have produced some magnificent art, and, but also interwoven with quite romantic stories of encounters and possible shipwrecks and meetings of sharks. Are there dramatic shipwreck sites that you'll find when you go to the Great Barrier Reef? There must be a lot of shipwrecks there. There are a lot of shipwrecks, though most of them were wooden ships, and so they're very hard, and also they get incredibly overgrown with coral. That's actually been one of the things I've been doing, is working with archaeologists finding shipwrecks. You also mentioned how Darwin got the creation of coral reefs wrong. Yes, well, in some ways Darwin got it right. What Darwin realized was that there's a mystery about reefs, because the little corals, little tiny little polyps that create them, their little limestone skeletons, can only live in relatively shallow water where there's light. So how do they produce these reefs that go down hundreds of hundreds Mm. of metres to the bottom of the dark seas? And he realised that it would have to be that the ground, the ocean bottom, was sinking very slowly, so they were always in the light. Oh, so they they were born, the, the reefs were born in shallow water, and then over time that sank deeper? Exactly, exactly. And there were there were lots of people who questioned him, including some famous Americans. And part of my story is about American expeditions to the reef that were very important in determining this story of how coral works. There's more with Ian McCallman and the history of the Great Barrier Reef just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Share your thoughts with us about the Great Barrier Reef and the impacts humans and climate change are having on the reef and its ocean inhabitants. We have an online message board where you can post your thoughts anytime. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And by phone, we're at 877-333-7425. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll check in with the author of such provocative titles as The Sex Lives of Cannibals, Getting Stoned with Savages, and Headhunters on My Doorstep. That's J. Martin Troost. Plus, we get a first-person report on a visit to Papua New Guinea in just a bit. Right now, joining us from Sydney, Australia, our guest is Ian McCallman. 
He's a social scientist, explorer, historian, and a professor of history at the University of Sydney. His books include Darwin's Armada, The Last Alchemist, and Radical Underworld. His latest is The Reef, a passionate history of the Great Barrier Reef from Captain Cook to climate change. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Beverly's calling in from Stone Mountain in Georgia. Hi, Beverly. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have visited the Great Barrier Reef along with my husband in 2009, and it was uh, the most fantastic sight that I know I've certainly seen underwater and one of the uh, top sights anywhere. Beautiful. What is special about the Great Barrier Reef from a wide-eyed snorkeler's point of view? What's so very special is the quantity of the coral and the quantity of the beautiful fish that you see. We were on a full-day snorkel where we went out several miles from the coastline before we got to the reefs, and it was amazing because of the sheer enormity of both yeah. the the reef corals and the fish themselves. How was the visibility? The visibility was fantastic. We had a beautiful, sunny day, <laughs> And uh, we were very fortunate to be able to see um, a great deal. My husband had an underwater camera, and we took some absolutely beautiful photographs that I have in a collage sitting uh, in a picture frame by our kitchen table, which we're able to enjoy every time we sit down to eat. Oh, that's a beautiful memory. Wonderful memories. Beverly, how did you get there for people who are uh, sort of enchanted by this idea of, of snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef? Is there one particular place you fly to that's best known for its snorkeling? We actually uh, stayed in Cairns, and then we took a bus basically from the tour company to get to Port Douglas, from mm-hmm. which we started our snorkeling adventure. Okay. Hey, Ian, can you kind of uh, get us the bearings if we're tourists or travelers going down there to enjoy the reef? What, what is the, if we're not, you know, scientists or, or, or helping sure. out with the BBC documentary, <laughs> if we're just typical travelers, how do you get there and uh, what's, what's accessible? Well, you, you, fly in, you fly into Cairns, and Cairns now connects with major USA towns and cities. I think you can fly directly from LA to Mm -hmm. Cairns. You can fly from San Francisco and it's about a 13-hour flight probably. Mm -hmm. And there's a great international airport there. And Cairns itself is a kind of place from which you launch like, like Beverly. Some people stay there, but many people stay at resorts. Do you go in by ferry or do you fly into little strips, airstrips deep into the reef? You go out by ferry or by boat. I mean, some parts the reef is quite close to the land, or you can go to an island where your reef, a fringing reef will be just outside your door. Nice. If you, say, stay at one of the resorts, and there are many island resorts. Or you can go out to the very outer reef, which in some cases it could be, you know, 40 kilometers in a fast, mm-hmm. big, fast boat. From a traveler's point of view, Ian, you've seen a lot of the reef. What would be the the single place to go if you wanted to just enjoy the reef in in many different dimensions of it? Well, I think actually what Beverly did was pretty sensible. A place like Port Douglas, which is also a favorite place of Bill Clinton, actually. Mm -hmm. Port Douglas gives you access to two of the reef's great things. One is the reef itself, the underwater reef, and you can go out to, say, Agincourt Reef, which is one of the outer barrier reefs. And I remember swimming there just a, a year or so ago mm. with turtles. Um, it was just fantastic. Nice. Uh, but at the same time, you're just next to the Mossman Gorge. And it's one thing we haven't mentioned. The reef is surrounded by some of the most sublime rainforest in the world. It's the oldest rainforest. It goes back 46 million years. It's rainforest that belongs to the time when Australia was part of Gondwana land. Beverly, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Enjoyed it. Ian McCullman is with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we learn about the wonders of the Great Barrier Reef. He was born in Africa, schooled in Zimbabwe and Australia, and today he teaches history at the University of Sydney. Ian is also a co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute and a member of the Royal Historical Society. He's joining us now to talk about his latest book, The Reef, A Passionate History of the Great Barrier Reef, from Captain Cook to Climate Change. 
Ian, speaking of passion, you know and love the reef, and, and uh, it is not uh, a certainty that will be here in the future. You call it a fragile and threatened treasure. How so? Yeah, it is, Rick. It's deeply threatened from so many directions. I mean, all reefs for a long time have been threatened, of course, by the advance of, you know, of, of tourism and cities and everything else that brings sewage and they bring pollution very often. That has been a factor in the damage to the reef. But the real problem now is as a result of climate change. The reef is affected by climate change in three, in three ways. One, by the warming of the waters. And they only need to warm within a degree or two to have reached the limit of the tolerance of reefs, and then they bleach. So there's massive areas of the reef that are now just bleached and dead like skeletons. That sounds like it's, there's no debate about it. I mean, it bleaches when the water heats up, and there are vast expanses of the reef that are bleached out now. That's right. And that's true, of course, of every reef in the world. It's kind of like a canary in the mine shaft when you, when you think about humanity being threatened by climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's threatened in one other way, which is even more frightening, and that is because the seas are absorbing CO2 and methane. They're, they're becoming more acid. And when they reach a certain acidic point, they need to dissolve limestone in order to balance their pH, like when we get indigestion, you know take one of those tablets. So the, the reef is, is functioning as an indigestion tablet for the ocean? Yeah. It's got, or you could put it another way and say it's got osteoporosis. Oh, no. Essentially what's happening is the water is so acid that it's starting to dissolve the reef. You know, gradually any, anything that are made of calcium including the little tiny plankton, will be dissolved by these acid waters. So the reef is, again, as you rightly said, it's a canary for much larger and threatening problems because things like the plankton are at the bottom of the food chain of the whole mm-hmm. oceans. Now, what if we're concerned about that and we want to we wanna enjoy and, and marvel at the reef, but we don't want to contribute to the the whole problem threatening the reef? Do you see tourism and and travelers coming to the reef as necessarily a problem? No, I don't actually. I'm in favor of tourism. I think that tourism is one of the things uh, properly managed. uh, Properly managed, tourism is one of the things that protects the reef, to be honest. I think that because of my concern about human attitudes to it, it's tourists like Beverly we just heard who love Mm. the experience and love the reef that help us to protect it against people who were quite recklessly willing to exploit it. Or I suppose it's people like Beverly who go to visit the reef and then can see just physically what's the consequence of global warming and uh, rising sea levels and uh, the change of the environment in sensitive areas that are that frightening canary in the mine shaft, and then they can go home and, and exercise the political will it takes to take global climate change seriously. Absolutely, Rick. Absolutely. That could be the most important souvenir of a trip to the Great Reef. I think it would be, honestly. And I think we need Americans. You know, I see the reef as a global thing. It belongs to the, to the world. In America, there's, it's expensive to deal honestly with climate change. And there's a lot of people that, I think, let their judgment be clouded because it's expensive for their, their businesses to deal with it honestly. In Australia, is there the same dynamic going on? Are people wrestling with, well, it's expensive, so I don't want to believe in it? Or is Australia a land that is more closer to nature and and more honest about grappling with with something that essentially all scientists agree is happening? I wish we were honest. um, But no, I would say that we're probably worse than the United States in our responses. We're desperately frightened of unemployment, and we see mining as the source, the only source of industry hmm. and economy in this country. We are in one tough bind, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I don't want to close on a negative. Let's just, uh, if, if I had a vacation and I'm heading down to Australia and I've got some time to enjoy the reef, Give me one vignette where I'll be so thankful that I went all the way down under to check that out. Where would I go and what would I do to make sure I get the most magical Great Barrier Reef experience? Well, I would, to get a magical Great Barrier Reef experience, I would probably actually go to one of the islands, like Heron Island, because you can step out your out of your door straight onto a 
glorious fringing reef and swim around there freely without any fear and in, with this wonderful environment. And the island itself is romantic and, you know, white sands and so on. I would, however, also make a visit to the mainland to see the rainforests. That's good advice. Ian McCallman, thank you so much for the work you've put into the reef, uh, passionate history, and uh, raising awareness of, of this natural wonder that, that we should all treasure, just like we treasure our national parks here in the United States of America. Thanks so much, Rick, and thank you for helping me to do that. Best wishes. From the tiny microscopic algae To the giant great white shark Dolphins stop by Travel just a little north of the Great Barrier Reef and you'll find yourself in one of the world's least explored nations, Papua New Guinea. It's been independent from Australia since 1975. As a member of the Commonwealth, they honor the British monarch as their head of state. Mining for gold, copper, and oil have recently brought some economic growth to the country, but most of its residents still live in traditional rural villages and many of them are in extreme poverty. There are more than 800 different indigenous communities in Papua New Guinea, and viewing their customs is a major attraction for tourists. Jake Warga got a chance to visit Papua New Guinea, and he files this report for us on what he observed. Sometimes, one of the hardest things a traveler has to navigate is the gap between expectation and reality. That is, the idea of the place and the often conflicting reality of it. Few places are more exotic in the imagination than Papua New Guinea. It should be like entering a National Geographic cover story with exotic deadly animals and, of course, cannibals. But once I stepped off the Air New Guinea jet, I entered a huge gap, a gap between the past and the present. The Sepik River Basin, deep in the heart of the country, is a popular tourist destination. It's a real jungle river tour with dense greenery, massive birds, and stops at tribal villages to meet the locals. Okay, my name is Ambrose Otto. I'm from Imas village. Ambrose is the leader of Imas village along the banks of the Sepik River. But there are two Imas villages. This is Imas number one, the traditional Imas one. There's the village where most people live in the present, but we're in the traditional village, the one living in the past where tourists go. They perform dances, supposedly, like they did before outsiders came. I know where Papua New Guinea is, but I'm not sure when it is. But we must totally speak our own language, which is Karam language. But recreating the past for the tourist quest for the authentic is helping them to preserve their culture and language. The young generation coming up lose their dialect now. They only speak pidgin English. That's one of the areas where these relics are now failing. So we are trying our best to... No, restart the, the tradition before the old people pass away. Luckily, one tradition that's not coming back, as I note the plump weight of visiting tourists, is cannibalism. Lots of visitors want to hear about cannibals, but the practice stopped in the 1930s. Well, I gave her a low price so she could come up a little bit. I wonder if she, us tourists have become the cannibals. Because you generally bargain. Women have lined up souvenirs along the path well, I, back to the boat. A Even a living museum exits through a gift shop. Uh, they drop down to 20. In a globalized world, it is culture that is commodified and consumed. Uh, she dropped down to 20. Yeah. We travel further upriver to another village, and like everywhere, we're greeted by excited children. As part of our tour, an elder demonstrates how to peel bark off a log. A woman cooks over an open fire. A canoe is being chopped into shape. The white people came in like first missionaries. They came in for first contact and start tell them, wear these clothes. This is Paul, a guide with the Kirawari Lodge. He's talking about Western clothes, which I don't see anyone wearing. No t-shirts or shorts, just grass skirts, bare breasts, skimpy loincloths, and naked children. People who are in Western clothes are not allowed to get close to the people who are dressed up in their local dressings because they are with the tourists taking pictures. Every tourist has a camera. We take images, cannibalize a moment in light. We often confuse authentic with poverty, past with present. Tourists are taking pictures. They don't want to 
take pictures of those who are in Western clothes. It's the 21st century, but while visiting a traditional village, I'm being pulled forward into the past. I'm visiting a time that the villagers themselves never even experienced. This is our own lifestyle in the past. I asked Paul if the village wants to live in the past. people dress up here? Do they want to go back? No. So why do it? It's too far now. They can't go back to you know, traditional dressings now because they are now influencing the Western culture now. So when white men first came up the river, they told the native people to put on clothes, stop speaking the local language, abandon their traditional ways, and here's the Bible. Now white people come and say, take off your Western clothes, embrace and display your traditional ways, but keep the Bible. My name is uh, Jackson Pini. Uh, our ancestors were cannibals. That's why they, they hunt the indigenous group of people to eat. Jackson and his band are performing at the Kokopo Lodge for us white folk, bringing us closer to the present with a song about my lost tribe, Californians. for the real, the authentic, I finally arrived in the present while seeking shelter from a rainstorm in a schoolhouse. On the Duke of York Island, the children, most in shorts, some in t-shirts, the girls in western dresses, sing a song for me, one they all know, the Papua New Guinea National Anthem. I'm Jake Warga for Travel with Rick Steves. Jake Warga is a freelance public radio producer, photographer, travel guide, and teacher. He divides his time between Seattle and Morocco. You can listen to his guest appearances on Travel with Rick Steves in our show archives. Look for programs number 348 and 357. He'll be back on the show from time to time to take us with him in his amazing travels. Jake has also put together a video presentation to go with his feature on Papua New Guinea. You can see that via this week's show details, and that's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Let's continue our voyage into the far reaches of the South Seas and head next into the wide expanse of the tropical Pacific. Author J. Martin Truce joins us in a minute to tell us what he and his wife found when they moved to a tiny atoll in Micronesia. The author of Headhunters on My Doorstep joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. It may be your fantasy to leave everything behind and escape to a remote tropical island in the South Seas. Well, J. Martin Truce knows exactly what it's like. He spent a number of years in the tropical Pacific, living in such remote island nations as Kiribati, Vanuatu, and Fiji. But he was eventually lured back to the United States to work as a consultant for the World Bank. Troost has produced some sharply written travel memoirs that ring true about the realities of travel and his own inner journey. In his latest book, he docks at the same ports of call in the South Pacific that Robert Louis Stevenson visited a century and a half earlier. His book's called Headhunters on My Doorstep, a true Treasure Island ghost story. Martin, thanks for sailing with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me on, Rick. So what draws you to the South Pacific? My first time in the South Pacific was purely accidental. But so much that's good in life is actually accidental. So it was uh, my then-girlfriend, now wife, and I, we were keen to move overseas. My girlfriend suddenly had an opportunity to uh, move and take over a position on Tarawa, which is a really remote little atoll in the Republic of Kiribati. And she called me one day and said, 
would you be inclined to move to a place called Kiribati? And I quit my job three minutes later <laughs> and uh, called her back and said, Kira what? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Hey, by the way, it's spelled Kiribati. We pronounce it Kiribati. Why is that? Well, it's because of the missionaries. It was the missionaries who introduced the written language to Kiribati, but for inexplicable reasons, they were really stingy with the letters, and they only gave them 13 letters. Ah, it was pronounced Kiribati before the missionaries came, but they didn't give them those letters. Exactly. So the T-I in Kiribati is actually an S sound. Okay. You wrote in uh, The Sex Life of Cannibals, Kiribati is a place where the movement of a turtle would be regarded as swift and reckless. How this so? is true. It's one of those places that seems almost timeless. But I think there's more, you know, that changes in China or India in a mm-hmm. blink of an eye than has changed in Kiribati over the past 20 years. It's a place that lives very, very much for today and has for a long time. It's also the isolation of these islands. There's just one plane that goes to the main island, Tarawa, once a week, but all the other islands are uh, almost entirely inaccessible. Once a week plane, and then otherwise it's just out in the That's middle? That's it. Where exactly is it in the South Pacific, and and describe it physically? It's uh, roughly where the equator and the international dateline meet in the Pacific, so really in the middle of the ocean, sort of equidistant from the, uh, the four continental corners. It's a nation of about 33 atolls spread out over an area as large as the continental United States. Spread out over the size of the United States, but what, 100,000 people or something? Altogether. Huh. And these islands, are, they're really not more than 200 yards wide, and they sort of curve like a, like a snake around a jewel, you know, being the lagoon. There's three island groups, but the main one is the Gilbert Island group, and that's where the bulk of the population lives. They're very poor, aren't they? It's one of the least developed countries on the planet. It's uh, generally a subsistence lifestyle there, meaning people gather fish from the sea, they gather coconuts from the tree, they make their homes from coconut wood and pandanus thatch, must be fascinating to travel there. Tell me some cultural experience. I mean, if you go there as a tourist, are you just some oddball in a jet-setter resort, or can you actually connect? No, there's, there's no jet-setter resort. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just makes me laugh, <laughs> just the thought of that. Um, there are no resorts, and there are no tourists. From time to time, there were, for a few years, a uh, veterans from the, the Battle of Tarawa would make the journey. There was a... Huh. Terrible uh, battle during World War II, the Battle of Tarawa that was fought there. And from time to time, they come by. But other than that, there's no tourists. You mentioned vocal and body percussion is the music on the islands. The Kiribati, I think, are one of the most musically inclined sort of nations in the world, sort of like a Jamaica or a Mali. They have a real gift, I think. And it's still prevalent today. If you do visit, you'll invariably hear the singing, which is bone-shaking. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Is that the place that was the first place to welcome the new millennium? I mean, you said it's right by yes, the Yes, that, that was their claim to fame. <laughs> That's they, they, where they I heard about it. They made a big deal out of it. That's right. The entire government hopped on a ship and disappeared for two, three weeks um, <laughs> to be the first. Now, so, are they going to uh, be around in the next millennium, or is climate no, change not. rising? They're what's, not. what's the story with the sea level and so on? It's been breathtaking, actually. I last was in Kiribati about 15 years ago and then recently returned. And much is exactly the same, but what what has changed is the sea level rising. You notice that on the shoreline, many of the coconut trees that are on the shoreline are now mm. dead. Mm. They're just these mm. dead That's trunks. That's tragic. And the gardens that were, were planted near the beaches on both the ocean and the lagoon side are all have all died. And the water, most people on a place like Tarawa rely on groundwater. It's becoming uh, almost too brackish to drink. Oh, no. It's a country that's disappearing. You said it was made of mostly atolls. What is an atoll? An atoll is essentially the crest of an undersea volcano, and so that it curves around the lagoon, and the lagoon uh, you can equate to uh, the crater. Okay, and that would be generally a protected sort of a harbor. Yes, it is, it is. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with J. Martin Troost, and Martin's written three travel memoirs about traveling through the South Pacific. His latest is Headhunters on My Doorstep, Martin, let's talk about Vanuatu. Uh, how is that different from Kiribati? Oh, it's, it's phenomenally different. Kiribati is a Micronesian nation. Vanuatu is Melanesian. They're high islands, very rugged and mountainous. It's on the ring of fire. Hmm. There are active volcanoes. On the islands is an extraordinary depth of languages. There's more than 100 languages, living languages in Vanuatu. 100 languages out of 200,000 people. That is in itself incredible. And on some of the islands, there will be nine separate languages. 
during the colonial era, they had a very strange arrangement. They were jointly ruled by uh, the British and the French. And hmm. you can imagine how well that worked. So what's the nitty-gritty, Martin, for travelers that might want to go to Vanuatu? Getting there, uh, hotels, the cost, language barrier? It's the country that I, I most frequently recommend for visitors to the South Pacific. In a place like Port Vila, which is on the main island of Afate, you have the nice, luxurious resorts. You have a very distinct Francophone influence as well, which helps out with the food. There's wonderful food to be had there. And then, just travel a little further to islands, say, like Tana, you have a place with an active volcano that you can hike up to the summit. You have people that live according to custom, which is essentially unchanged over a thousand years. But it's really like traveling through a multitude of worlds. And then you have this breathtaking beauty. I mean, these high volcanic islands oh. and, and the sea and the lagoons. It's wonderful. Now, what about, there's hangouts for men, traditional clubhouses or something like that? And they're just yeah, the Nakamal. What is that like? Well, the Nakamal, it's uh, in the evenings, the men in Vanuatu would go to partake of kava. What's kava? It's made from the shrub of a pepper plant. And it's sort of masticated and mixed with water. It's a narcotic. And it's drunk throughout the Pacific in Polynesia and in Melanesia. But Vanuatu's kava is distinct for its strength. You'll notice if you've been to Fiji, you'll see men drinking kava all day long. You would never do that in a place like Vanuatu. In, right. in Vanuatu, it's a much more sort of religious, spiritual experience. Huh. And uh, where you take the cup of kava, the proffered cup, and you, you look at the sunset, for instance, and you take that beautiful image and have your kava, and you're sort of suffused with this sort of this warmth and, and whatnot. But take too much of it, and you'll just you you know, topple over kava. flat on your back. <laughs> <laughs> Are you likely, as an American traveler in Vanuatu, to, to meet interesting characters? Oh, for sure. I mean, in a place like uh, the South Pacific, in particular the more obscure nations like Vanuatu, you never quite know who's going to show up. It's not your typical package tourist. It's a um, breathtaking amalgamation of different sorts of people. And what makes Vanuatu interesting, too, is that they've always been sort of known for um, their sort of shadow banking system and their sort of online casinos and, you know, all sorts of shady characters <laughs> end up in Vanuatu <laughs> as well. <laughs> So when you're at the cafe and you see the guy with a fedora, okay. I'm sure there's a story. Look at his briefcase and heaven knows what's in there. <laughs> exactly. That's Vanuatu. The travels of J. Martin Troost are worth writing home about. He grew up in Holland, Czechoslovakia, Canada, and the United States. His memoirs, called The Sex Lives of Cannibals, Getting Stoned with Savages, and Lost in Planet China, are among today's most candid and entertaining travel narratives. He retraces the South Seas travels of Robert Louis Stevenson in his latest book, Headhunters on My Doorstep, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So, Martin, you've got me and a lot of our listeners inspired, I would imagine, to check this out. Let's talk just about Kiribati. How would I get there? And then I'm your sidekick. It's the first time I've been there. What would you show me to really make that quintessential Kiribati experience? First of all, you'd be among the few, the proud, because the country uh, attracts fewer than uh, a thousand visitors a year. That's for the entire nation during the entirety of the year. You'd be flying in from Fiji. That's the from only Fiji. place to get oh, Okay, in. so yes. Fiji's the big city nearby. Exactly. And then I think I'd take you in to sort of see Basio. It's a little islet, but it's where the Battle of Tarawa occurred, and you can go see the war mm. ruins, which are all over the island. I bet. The uh, big guns, and if you walk along the reef at low tide, you'll still find bullets. So this is 70 years it's been there, since World War II. And it's still there. And it's also important to remember that's the nature of uh, an island, is, uh, is such a small environment that mm -hmm. uh, everything you bring in essentially is there forever. If you're going to go to Kiribati, what I would really recommend is just getting on the water because the mm. water is where the great, great beauty of the island lies. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like it, and particularly if you can find, there is one remaining ferry that goes to Abayang. It's a very simple boat, a homemade wooden trimaran. It's not a far journey by miles, but it'll take you the entire day to do. In fact, you'll probably go backwards when you uh, are going against the tide. But to mm. be on the water, to see that transition from lagoon to ocean, and to see sort of the clumps of flower and coral below, and... Uh, you're likely to see a turtle and whatnot. That's just breathtaking to see. The transition from lagoon to ocean, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. You, you wouldn't know that there are actually so many different shades of blue. You don't see it until you're in a place like that. If you're a tourist to Kiribati, you need to uh, not be on a strict itinerary, I would imagine. No, 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 no. You definitely need time. <laughs> 
You want to fly out next Thursday? Exactly, exactly. Now let's go to Vanuatu. I'm your travel partner in Vanuatu. You're the expert. Uh, how do I get there, and what, what are you going to do to wow me with their nature and their culture? Vanuatu is much more accessible. You can reach it from Australia. You can reach it from New Caledonia. You can reach it from New Zealand, I believe. That's what counts as accessible in the South Pacific. Right. And it does have uh, fairly nice hotels and guest houses and bungalows in, in Port Vila. And there's a nice little resort right in the harbor as well. So you'll enjoy sort of the views. And the food is actually very, very good in Port Vila. I can envision these lush mountains in the middle of the ocean. Where will I go for that quintessential paradise South Pacific vision? I'd go on to the island of Tana. Tana is accessible by plane. There's at least two flights a day on Air Vanuatu. Tana, T-A-N-A? Mm-hmm. You'll be flying there by prop planes. Mm-hmm. The runway is paved. It's another sort of upside to the island. Not all runways are. Yeah, I like my runways paved. And there's uh, guest houses on all the different corners of the island, which is good too, so you can move from one corner to the other. In the middle of it are some very, very high, very evocative mountains, and it's sort of uh, anchored by uh, Mount Yasur. Mount Yasur sort of builds itself as one of the world's most accessible volcanoes. One of the things to do there is to go up before dawn or around sunset, and you can get up to the very rim of the volcano. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but... To really sort of be on the, mm. the rim of an active volcano and you listen to the venting and swooshing and you smell the sulfur and then suddenly seeing sort of the lava bombs, you know, exploding up above you, gets your pulse racing. <laughs> so you've stood on the rim of that South Pacific volcano? It's not the sort of thing I'm sure that you'd be able to do in a place like the U.S. or Europe or that sort of thing. No, but you hike up there then? Yes, you can hike up there. There's some places will also take a, a four-wheel drive about halfway up, and then you hike the rest of the way. Is the ground hot under your feet? Yeah, it's steaming. You can feel the heat. It's the noise as well. It's like listening to the, the entirety of the oceans all stuck in a canyon. So it's sort of like this massive whooshing sound. And then to stand and peer over the rim, it's sort of like really looking into the real depths of the core of Earth. And you can see sort of the, the molten rock you know, blow, and then you, you listen to the sounds, and you really have to pay attention for those explosions. And then you turn 180 degrees, and you look out, and, and you what do you see? And you run like hell. <laughs> no, no, let's say, let's say the volcano is calm enough, but you turn around, and you have all this molten lava stuff behind you, but before you, I would imagine, a dense tropical forest, a cliff, a vast ocean view, what do you see? You can see sort of former lava flows, and sort of the accumulation of all the ash that comes out, and so sort of one part of the island is sort of this barren moonscape, very, very otherworldly. And then the, the rest of it is lush and dense and, and really Edenic. And then all surrounded by sort of the blue of the water and the blue of the sky. And, and the contrast of it all is such an extraordinary sight. And typically you're encouraged to see it all around uh, sunrise or sunset. It's a breathtaking experience. Sounds beautiful. And then you go back into the town... Well, this is a Biantana, so there aren't really towns. There'd be more like villages. And okay. then you can you can see some of the distinct and varied cultures that still inhabit the island. You have people living according to custom, which means that they uh, eschew and reject all modern ways. They live really as their, their elders did hundreds, thousands of years ago. And they'll invite you into your into the village and, and show you how they do things. So is this an actual decision they make they're going to live, quote, according to custom? Yes. Very much so. And then you have these very strange fusions of the two, like the John Fromm cargo cult, which is, uh, originates in Tana as well. This was uh, a group of people in a village that were very much taken by the amount of material that was being brought through during World War II, when Vanuatu was being used as sort of a staging ground. Michener wrote about it. Um, hmm. James Michener was based in Vanuatu at that time. And they sort of fused this strange world of all these tanks and jeeps and airplanes wow. and then with a little bit of what they were hearing from the missionaries and then they brought their own sort of island sensibilities and created this sort of unique and very peculiar system of beliefs where they will march through their clearing you will see the flag of the u.s navy rising proudly in, in the middle of the village all from a legend from john frum who was said to be a soldier who told him that if you live according to custom, you know, I will return with cargo for you. It's amazing combining sort of, you know, the outside world with these inner island sensibilities, and you never quite know what results. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with J. Martin Proust. He's written a trilogy of travel memoirs on his experiences in the South Pacific. His latest book is Headhunters on My Doorstep, inspired by the voyages and experiences of Robert Louis Stevenson 100 years ago. He's also written The Sex Lives of Cannibals about Kiribati. And he's written a book called Getting Stoned with Savages about his time in Vanuatu. Martin, let's finish by going from the rim of that volcano down to the little village. I want to meet a man who's living according to custom, and I want to enjoy some kava with him. Write me just a little chapter in your book right now of meeting that guy, sitting with him, enjoying the kava. Well, the first thing you'll notice is that he's not wearing much, and the uh, kava typically is sort of ceremonially prepared. It'll be a male-only sort of environment on a custom place like this village on Tana. And he will uh, invite you to uh, take this kava. It's drunk out of a coconut shell. You'll be sort of asked to take a look at, say, the sunsets or the steam of, of Mount Yasu or some image of beauty. And you'll be invited to sort of have a drink, and it will taste filthy. It will taste sort of like a, a mud, a peppery mud water. This isn't like having a fine wine. The point is to gulp it down all at once. Then you will likely, in all likelihood, you'll be given a piece of fruit to chew on. And then you'll just sort of commune quietly. You'll find that you uh, rarely raise your voice. Your voice will go down to a whisper. And you'll sort of experience a strange sensation of merely sort of being. And uh, you can tell why the, the Vanuatu Kava is regarded as so special on the islands. Oh, baby. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like a rare travel experience. It is. It's not the nightclub. It's no. sort of the antithesis of it. And is that realistic? Could I actually do that if I went to Vanuatu? Absolutely. Absolutely. It'd be fun to pick up the language. You're having this magic kava moment, um, and you're thankful for the, the beauty. What would you say? Well, they, they speak bislama, which is a kind of pigeon. Oh. My favorite bislama word is their word for pope. The pope is a number one Jesus man. <laughs> Number one Jesus man. Sign me up. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're sailing the South Pacific with J. Martin Troost. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and ABC Radio in Sydney for their help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's updated each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.